0: your eyes and imagine you're in a hospital, recovering from an illness or surgery, completely dependent upon the doctors, nurses, and aides caring for you. You look forward to finally getting out of your hospital room, walking down the hallway, out the front door, and into the fresh air. You envision yourself back at home with family and friends, going for coffee or out to a nice meal. You're only a few days away from getting back to your old life. Little do you know that within a matter of hours, you'll be dead. Not because your illness has become worse. Not because there were complications from your surgery. In fact, you're starting to feel better. No, today you will die because the person caring for you, the one who brings you water when you're thirsty, an extra blanket when you get chilly, has decided that you will die. Your sweet, smiling angel of a nurse is really an angel of death. Angels of death in the medical field are called healthcare serial killers, or HSKs. These killers can be difficult to discover, but there are a few warning signs that many of these people share. HSKs tend to make their co-workers nervous. They often have a history of depression and may appear to have a personality disorder. An obvious red flag is a higher number of deaths during the employee's shift. Many HSKs are drawn to working the night shift. It's common for angels of death to target the most vulnerable of patients, namely infants and elderly people. Psychologists have identified the top three types of HSKs, the malignant hero, the sadistic killer, and the mercy killer. Malignant heroes put the patient's life in danger, only to save them and receive praise for doing so. Sadistic HSKs kill for pleasure. They enjoy watching their victims suffer and die. Mercy killers believe they are helping the patient by ending their suffering, though oftentimes the suffering is imagined. Jane Topin, or Jolly Jane, killed 33 people between the years of 1895 and 1901. She enjoyed toying with their lives, bringing them to the brink of death and saving them, only to kill them for good. She would hold them in her arms as they died. Topin claimed she got a sexual thrill from killing. The daughter of Irish immigrants, Jane was born Honora Kelly. Her mother died of tuberculosis when she was a child, and her father was an alcoholic who abused her and her sister Delia. He was believed to be insane and there were rumors that he eventually sewed his eyelids shut while working as a tailor. In 1863, Honora and Delia, who were eight and six at the time, were surrendered to an orphanage by their father. In 1864, Honora became an indentured servant to Anne Toppin and her family in Lowell, Massachusetts. She took on their last name and began going by Jane. Toppin began training as a nurse in 1885 at Cambridge Hospital and was so friendly that she earned the nickname Jolly Jane. At Cambridge, she used her patients to experiment with mixtures of morphine and atropine, often medicating them so they would fall asleep and she could get into bed with them. She transferred to Massachusetts General Hospital in 1889. She was fired after only a year. Tobin went back to Cambridge, but was fired from there as well for over administering opiates. She decided to go into private nursing. In 1895, she poisoned her 83-year-old landlord, Israel Dunham. She killed his wife in 1897. In 1899, Topin killed 69-year-old Elizabeth Brigham, who had been one of her foster sisters, by poisoning her with strychnine. The same year, she killed a 70-year-old patient, Mary McNear. In 1900, she murdered her foster sister's housekeeper and two more patients. While caring for Alden and Maddie Davis, an elderly couple, she murdered Maddie and moved in to look after Alden full-time. She killed him after just a couple weeks, followed by his sister and two of his daughters. Members of the Davis family requested a toxicology exam on the youngest daughter, and it was discovered that she had been poisoned. Authorities investigated Toppin, and she was arrested in 1901. She confessed to 31 murders but told her lawyer that she had killed more. Toppin was found not guilty by reason of insanity and committed to the Taunton Insane Hospital for life. Janine Jones, a nurse in San Antonio, Texas, is an example of a malignant hero. She would inject babies with medications that caused them to go into cardiac arrest or hemorrhage. After, she would revive them and get attention and praise from staff and parents many of these babies did not make it. Jones had been investigated and even fired from two facilities due to the high number of infant deaths associated with her. In 1982, she was indicted after it was suspected that she had poisoned 14-month-old Chelsea McClellan, who had only come to the Carville Hospital for a routine vaccination. Upon receiving her shot, Chelsea had a seizure and was rushed to San Antonio for treatment. While en route, the baby went into cardiac arrest and died. A grand jury indicted Jones after an investigation revealed a link between infant deaths and the nurse. During Chelsea McClellan's autopsy, succinylcholine a medication used to paralyze muscles during surgery, was found in her blood. Jones was convicted of murder and sentenced to 99 years in 1984. She was put on trial again and convicted of injecting another child with an overdose of heparin, a blood thinner. She received an additional 60 years. No one knows for sure how many babies she killed, but it is estimated that it could be as many as 50. Kristen Gilbert An RN at the Veterans Administration Medical Center in Northampton, Massachusetts, began to draw suspicion when a high number of patients began dying of cardiac arrest during her evening shift. In her childhood years, Gilbert had the reputation for being a pathological liar, even claiming to be related to Lizzie Borden. She verbally and physically abused her boyfriends and faked suicide attempts. She graduated high school early and went on to major in pre med in college. During school, while working as a home health care worker for a mentally challenged boy, she scalded him with hot bathwater. 60% of his body was burned, but she was never charged. In 1988, she graduated college, landed a job at the VA hospital, and married her husband, Glenn Gilbert. Their marriage was rocky. And she once chased him through the house with a butcher knife. They had their first child in 1990 and Gilbert returned to work. This was when the increase in deaths from cardiac arrests began. The marriage between Kristen and Glenn was already troubled, but the birth of their second son added even more stress. She began dating a VA hospital security guard, James Peralt. Every time a medical emergency occurred at the hospital, security was called. Gilbert would inject her patience and attempt to see more of James, often flirting with him after the event. Her husband, Glenn, would later testify that it was during this time he started noticing his food had a strange taste. He was convinced she had tried to poison him. Kristen's boyfriend, James, had told her she had to leave her husband or they were finished. She chose James, leaving Glenn and the two boys behind. Gilbert moved into her own apartment. The increased number of deaths continued and some of her co-workers started monitoring the inventory of drugs that could cause cardiac arrest. The supply of epinephrine was found to be repeatedly lower than what was expected. When three nurses reported their suspicions in 1996, Gilbert was investigated. Investigators discovered that she had been inducing massive heart attacks in her patients by injecting their IV bags with large amounts of epinephrine. She became increasingly erratic, even calling in a bomb threat to the hospital. Gilbert served 15 months in federal prison for the threat. While she was incarcerated, the hospital's death rate returned to normal. Several of her patients were exhumed, and epinephrine was discovered in their bodies, even though the medication had not been prescribed to any of them. With the investigation heating up, Peralt broke things off with Gilbert in 1996, And a month later, she attempted suicide and was admitted to a psychiatric ward. At her trial two years later, Peralt testified that Gilbert had confessed to killing her patients. The total number of deaths that had occurred during her shifts in the seven years she worked at the VA hospital was 350. She was found guilty of three counts of first-degree murder, one count of second-degree murder, and two counts of attempted murder. Although she could have potentially faced the death penalty because her crimes were committed on federal property, she was sentenced to four consecutive life terms plus 20 years without the possibility of parole. 23-year-old Valtrid Wagner was working the graveyard shift at Lyne's Hospital in Austria, the fourth largest medical facility in Vienna. It was on this night in 1983 that Wagner would take her first victim she killed a 77-year-old woman with an overdose of morphine. Wagner would claim that this woman had asked her to help end her suffering, and had she been caught, Wagner would have faced a maximum of just five years in prison under Austrian law. She confessed that holding the power of life and death in her hands was intoxicating. Young Wagner was charming and charismatic. She used this to her advantage, convincing 19-year-old Maria Gruber a single mother in nursing school dropout, 21-year-old Irene Ladolf, an unhappily married woman looking for any excuse to stay at work, and Stefania Meyer, a divorced 43-year-old grandmother who had recently immigrated from Yugoslavia, to join in the killings. The group's original modus operandi was injecting patients with an overdose of morphine, insulin, or rohypnol. Maybe in an attempt to dodge the suspicion of missing drugs, they went on to develop what they called the water cure. One of these women would hold the patient's head down and pinch their nose while another would pour water down their throat until they drowned. The patients endured an agonizing death. It took between 45 minutes to an hour for each of them to die using this method. Nothing was suspected because elderly patients often have fluid in their lungs at the time of death. Though Wagner and Ladoff claimed their actions were mercy killings, Many of these patients were not terminally ill. In fact, some were killed simply for wetting the bed. One death in 1988 appeared suspicious, but investigators were unsuccessful in finding any evidence of a crime. One death in 1988 appeared suspicious, but investigators were unsuccessful in finding any evidence of a crime, claiming the hospital was uncooperative. The women were finally caught when a doctor overheard them chatting about past murders and discussing potential future victims at a local tavern. In Wagner's initial interrogation, she confessed to 49 quote-unquote euthanasia killings. She later revoked her confession and admitted to killing 10. She was sentenced to life in prison after being convicted of 32 murders. Ladoff claimed she had only assisted Wagner and stated she believed Wagner had killed over 100 people. Meyer said she only murdered out of pity but confessed to the murder allegations. She received only 20 years in prison after providing information on Wagner's murders. Gruber was the youngest and claimed that as an inexperienced helper she was not allowed to perform any medical tasks. Gruber stated that she was pressured by the other women to murder Gruber stated that she was pressured by the other women to murder and only confessed to two of them. She received a 15-year sentence but only served 12. Several previous patients were exhumed and autopsied, but because patients with weak conditions often die with water in their lungs, also known as pulmonary edema, no compelling case could be made. However, a fatal dose of insulin in one patient led to arrest warrants. The women were convicted in 1991. Vultred Wagner and Irene Ladoff were both sentenced to life in prison. Stefania Meyer received 20 years, and Maria Gruber was sentenced to only 15. Due to good behavior, Austria's Ministry of Justice approved the release of Wagner and Ladoff in 2008. Meyer and Gruber had been released several years earlier and had gone on to assume new identities. Thank you so much for listening to the very first episode of Crimesmith. If you liked this story, please subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you'd like to see pictures related to the cases, head over to Crimesmith.com and check out the blog. To provide feedback or offer future episode suggestions, click the contact link on the website to send me an email. You can also send me a message through the Crimesmith Facebook page. Please join me next week for another episode of Crimesmith, a true crime podcast.